It's been a couple weeks, but again, we're back. How are you doing, Emzer? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We got um, our second shots last weekend. Oh, yeah, that is true. feeling good. So almost our entire house is now fully vaccinated. Yeah, it's so exciting. So when did you get yours on Friday? Friday and Saturday, gotcha. I was exhausted. Yeah, what did, what Sunday were your I feelings afterwards? Like um, during it, after it? I got my second shot on Friday. Felt great Friday night. Uh, Saturday, it was almost twenty four hours. I got my shot Friday at noon, and by Saturday at noon, Saturday morning, I felt fine. Saturday by noon, I was just felt like I got hit by a truck. I was just tired. Wanted to watch Jeopardy all day, and I couldn't get warm. I had the <laughs> chills, um, but otherwise, not not too bad. I mean, everyone's kind of uh, experiencing it differently, but the sort of uh, the uh, what's it called? The common common symptom I'm hearing is just exhaustion, and yeah. it's usually gone within 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. So, and now you, and then you just feel like Sunday morning. I just felt good and like excited, and you know. That's fine. Back to normal, yeah. Yeah, I got mine on Sunday, and I started feeling that exhaustion feeling, like, pretty much right after I got injected with a shot, which I don't know if wow. that's weird or not, but, like, no, almost... No, some people, it's in- immediate, yeah. Yeah, I felt super drowsy driving home from the Coliseum, and then uh, I was basically, like, I basically took a giant nap at, like, I don't oh, know, nice. two hours after I'd gotten it. And uh, I was feeling pretty bad, just like hot and cold sweat. Hot and cold, and, yeah. Um, sweat. Not not super bad, but like, you know, not great either. Yeah. And um, then the next day, I felt pretty much back to normal. I felt a little tired in the morning, but after that, I was back to normal. Yeah. So yours was quicker, but lasted about the same amount of time, like twelve-ish yeah. hours. Yeah, yeah. About the same, but it knocked out my whole Saturday. <laughs> but yeah, so we're one step closer to you know. Real live concerts one day soon. We had a show last yeah, two that's right. ago. Yeah, that's right. You want to talk about Outdoors, that a little bit? Outdoors, socially distanced, uh, Donkey and Goat Winery in Berkeley. They have this giant back lot, and they uh, we've played there before pre-COVID. They put us on this giant truck bed. Flatbed, yeah. Flatbed. Yeah. I kept calling it a truck bed, and people It'd be were like, weird. that yeah. doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, like a flatbed, so it's like this wooden metal thing on wheels that's, you know, st- staged there at the end of the parking lot and then people are coming up you know and sitting at wine barrels and and drinking wine and watching us play and so we're all up there with uh you know the drums and everything and it's basically an earthquake simulation for two hours (laughs) it's so shaky yeah i i had my entire mic like swinging around almost the entire show just because it was you know (laughs) it was like it was on skates or something it was like yeah the second alante could be drumming like like he was tapping like very, very, even if he was doing that, it would yeah. move the whole stage like anything. So I had to like dance with my feet planted. And yeah, when you, ha- when you're holding a guitar, you're just like, the mic is just I waving. was following the mic around. Yeah, yeah. Just like waving back and forth, like maybe a foot, six inches, like every second. And then when I wasn't holding a guitar, I was just holding the microphone, like, you know, Julian Casablancas or something. Cause yeah. I'm just trying to make it look like performance. You don't but want really, to I was just holding it still and it kept hitting my teeth. Oh and I was man, just like, I knew Fuck. it. I was going to ask. I was like, how many times? <laughs> click, how many Which times is did it hit your the, teeth? Also, like, one, painful. Two, might kind of shock you a little and then, like, electrocute. And then three, like, it just sounds really bad. Like, yeah. you know, it's like that really bad thing. And also it looks kind of doofy. You're like, oh, I just stupid. hit myself with yeah, the Yeah, it also looks so dumb. Like, totally and, done this before. Yeah, but we got to bring <laughs> vinyls for the first time to a show. We sold three. 
Yeah, we sold we sold some vinyls, which was nice, um, especially because you know when you're just sitting at home, it's really hard to move them. Yeah, we, and uh, yeah. we we met some new friends. It, it was a great time. Yeah, and we've got some more coming up by uh, Livermore. Yeah, Livermore, April 2nd. We're going to play at Monica's, nice. which is fun. Yeah. So it seems like the world is starting to slowly but surely get back to normal, and hopefully it'll continue in this direction. And we'll Yeah, it's it's kind of like, you know, me and Amber picked up takeout on maybe last week, and we, like, walked in the restaurant to grab the takeout, and it was, like, full-on, you know, indoor seating. And I was like, I don't think I'm ready for this yet. You know, yeah. like, there's certain things where I'm like, mm, not not ready for this yet. It's weird because it's mostly a mental thing because now we're all vaccinated. So, yeah. like, hypothetically, if you're it's in that fine. situation, yeah. you wouldn't be like, oh, my God, I'm terrified I'm going to get it or whatever. It's, it's more just like a crowd, like an aversion to crowds, which I've always kind of had. But yeah. now it's like, now it's like, ah, people bad, inside bad, outside good. Yeah. It's, so. it's weird how it's kind of changed our psychology. It's been a year. Yeah. The year has definitely affected everyone's psychology in a weird kind of way. And uh, social norms are going to be different. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people forget how to socially interact all the time. It's so funny. Like, you see yeah. people out in public now, and you're like, hey, what's going on? They're like, hey. <laughs> oh, man. I hated running into people, like, halfway through the pandemic because they're like, yeah. how are you? And I'm like, we're doing nothing. How are you? Like, there's just nothing. Yeah. And, like, small talk is just gone for me. I don't know nothing. how to do it anymore. Um so, what are we talking about today? Well, I thought it was a fun segue. We just played on the back of a flatbed truck. Yes. And when I had played it, I was in the midst of reading this book that we're going to be talking about today. And it was all about, you know, the San Francisco hippie movement and mm-hmm. how they used to throw all these free concerts on the back of flatbed trucks. So it was like a very similar environment. Obviously, yeah. we're playing at some hoity-toity winery, but they're playing in the middle of, you know, Haight-Ashbury. Yeah, in the so, 60s, mostly the Grateful Dead, right? In Jefferson Airplane. Yeah. I mean, pretty much everyone in the in that uh, in that scene, yeah. Santana, you know, th- those kinds of people. Um but the book, so we're going to talk about uh, the tragedy at uh, the free concert at Altamont, yeah. which is an absolutely batshit crazy um, series of events that yeah. lead up to this ultimate tragedy. And um, I I mean, I'd heard about it and we'd been talking about doing it. I think we even mentioned er- in an earlier podcast that we were going to talk about it. And we yeah. went into a little bit of detail, but... Not like we're going to go into. So we're going to actually turn this one into a two-parter. So this will be yeah. part one of it has uh, the, to be. <laughs> yeah, the free concert at Altamont because it is a lot to deal with. Well, you really have to set the scene, you know. That's what I realized reading this book. I'm like, you can't just like, I mean, you can just do the concert. But yeah. it's like, it's a series of events and snowball effect and so many tiny um, cultures or uh, different aspects of culture coming together to mm-hmm. create this perfect storm um that it's happens end in tragedy yeah, yeah for sure i mean it's i don't know how they didn't see it coming from a mile away it's surprising there wasn't more tragedies like this with all the drugs and stuff that was going on just real haphazardly um yeah. it was yeah. i mean it was crazy. perfect storm so i'm just basically gonna guide our way through this from the lens of uh, the book written by Joel Selvin, um, Altamont, the Rolling Stones, the Hell's Angels, and the inside story of Rock's Darkest Day. I think it's Altamont. I keep saying Altamont. 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 I'm probably going to say it a million different ways. (laughs) That's just the way. (laughs) It's just the way I talk. Yeah. And um, 
I did not read an entire book uh, for researching this, but a decade ago, I did read Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. I did read Ken Kesey, a lot of him. I read a bunch of Ginsburg Kerouac. And then um, I I read Hell's Angels by Hunter S. Thompson um, on our road trip in 2008. And... Um, I reread a lot of that and yeah. can pull some of that when we start talking about sort of how the hell's ain't, why the hell's angels are the way they are. Yeah. So <laughs> why are they the way that why you are they like this so, and how they became involved, which is yeah. the big, you know, and it, it is really interesting how this all happens. So I'm just going to kind of briefly describe the scene at the time. Mm hmm. This is 1969. It's October 1969 specifically before the concert, which happened on December 6th okay. um, in, where was it again? Uh, Tracy, California. Yeah, Tracy, mm-hmm. California. Um, so during, you know, the late 60s, there was the summer of love and this hippie explosion yeah. that came out of the San Francisco music scene, specifically like the hate Ashbury. Yeah. And, a big reason for that was the rise of LSD, which was synthesized by this one dude um, named uh, Owsley Stanley. And he was a, he basically went to the library and figured out the uh, chemical, you know, uh, formula. I'm, I'm like totally screwing this no, up, but it. he figured out the chemical formula, like to synthesize LSD. Was he at, was he at UC Berkeley? I think it was at UC Berkeley, like their library that he too. found it. Yeah. But he had this, um, he had this house in Point Richmond and, uh, he, um, and Rock Scully, who will also be introduced to, yeah. um, and Melissa Cargill, who is his girlfriend at the time and also a skilled chemist. Um, Ooh. they created this batch of LSD that I think was like 300,000 tablets. And, That's uh, so many. Yeah, and they they called this white lightning, and um, so this drug took over Hate Ashbury, and the the LSD purist, like a person who is like all about taking LSD in the late Mm sixties, he wouldn't mix it with other drugs. He wouldn't especially mix it with alcohol. Right, it was like this pristine journey that this person was going through, and that it was an intent to learn an intent to kind of give yourself away to this journey. And that's why these free concerts in, in, uh, hate Ashbury were so calming. And so like, despite there being, you know, tens of thousands or maybe even a hundred thousand people like, uh, this human being, which was an event that was held in 67. It was, uh, one of the first um, free concerts Mm. and it was completely peaceful. There were no incidents. Um, The hell's angels ran security. They were like helping lost. They even ran the hell's angels ran like the lost children section. Oh my God. So they were like helping (laughs) children find their parents and it was one big love fest. Yeah. So that was basically what was going on in San Francisco. There was this, free concert momentum and it got to the point where people were like if you're not giving free concerts you're a capitalist piece of shit and you're just out for money <laughs> if you want to make profit yeah, yeah, yeah you're yeah. a you're a you know you're a, cor- a corporate shill you're a pig like yeah. they they were so against the concept of like paying for music which they all believe should be free okay. at that time so this 
um, San Francisco music scene that I'm talking about was the coolest thing that was happening in the late 60s, mid-late uh, mid 60s. Yeah. They were, they were the absolute pinnacle of what every artist wanted to be like. I mean, you look at the Beatles. They started doing drugs and experimenting. The Rolling Stones started getting more into drugs, started to release albums that were a little more, you know, less uh, R&B, like blues heavy. Yeah. And more like pop, like Paint It Black, you know, uh, Sympathy for the Devil, stuff yeah. like that. They started to get more into that sort of um, era. So the biggest bands were all taking their cues from this tiny little scene that was happening in San Francisco. So with that came this uprising of free concerts. Now in San Francisco, like the, the biggest band was Jefferson Airplane, hmm. but maybe the most influential band was the Grateful Dead yeah. because it was their sound guy, Owsley Stanley, that synthesized all the LSD. Oh, he's a sound guy yeah, too. Yeah, he's a sound guy. He also invented like monitor wedges. Where, you oh, know, monitors. Yeah, like, yeah. He invented a lot of, a lot of intense stuff. Um, not just to do with LSD. Really interesting character. Well, for, for the non-musician listeners, monitor wedges are when you're on stage, you want to be able to hear yourself. So there's speakers yeah. pointed towards the band. And that's where you're going to hear your vocals and the drummer can hear the guitar player and yeah. all that stuff. And there were different mixes too. So he, yeah. found, he found out ways to do this that really had not been done before. Which so they is, didn't have monitors before that. <laughs> this is what I'm, a, this is what I'm gathering from this. I mean, crazy. I read the, I, re, I was reading this book and they were talking about how he invented the monitor wedge. I was like, are you so serious? So what were they doing before that? They might've had a different form of monitor maybe because this is a monitor wedge. So it's like a, you Oh, know, like so maybe they just in. had something. Maybe they had something different. But remember when it's like, you know, the Beatles would complain like we can't hear ourselves because of yeah. all the screaming girls. Yeah. Maybe they didn't have monitors. Well, they might not have had monitors. And if you think about <laughs> it, like if you just stand in front of giant ass speakers, you're probably going to hear something, yeah. you know? So I think that's kind of what they did. And don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. But uh, <laughs> I don't think that they really had adequate monitors until this guy invented them. I believe it. So let's uh, go back now. We're in 1869. It's oh. October. This gentleman by the name of Rock Scully. So, Wait, 1869? Uh, 1969? 1969. Did I, did I say 1869? Yeah, I just All wanted right, to we're make back sure. We're back in the pirate days now. <laughs> I was like, where are we going? We're uh, with Rock Scully. And he's a 24-year-old manager of the Grateful Dead. And he flew to London basically with the idea that he was going to help them make their free concerts more vintage San Francisco hippie. Like huh. they wanted to learn how to really throw these free concerts from the perspective of the, the person at the epicenter of, of this, this free 24 year old manager of the Rock grateful School. dead. Yeah. It's such a funny story. He like shows up, he shows up to the London hospital with like, I mean, hospital airport with like pharmaceutical cocaine and like a shit ton of acid and, um, immediately gets pulled by the custom agents. You know, they find all his crap, throw him in jail. So then they have another person from San Francisco fly over and she has like thousands of tabs of acid in her bra and what? they sell all this acid in London because they weren't getting like real San Francisco acid. They were getting yeah. like knockoff acid. And so they, you know, sold that all over London to pay for his bail, which wow. is wild. So That's cool. He gets bailed out, um, and 
went to speak with the the folks that he wanted to talk to you know the free concerts about um they're called black hill enterprises and they had thrown a free concert in um june 19 uh 1968 with blind faith mm. um so that's eric clapton's like tweener band you know like the, after cream is that do they do um uh, can't find my way home yeah they do can't find my way home they also the other artists um were tyrannosaurus rex and pink floyd and jethro tull Tyrannosaurus Rex, not to be confused with T-Rex. Yeah. Different so, band. No, same dude, but it was a different... Wait, Remember, really? Tyrannosaurus Rex was when Mark Bolin was playing... It is Mark Bolin. ...acoustic guitar cross-legged with a bongo player cross-legged. Oh, no. And then he got into <laughs> rock and roll and became like T-Rex. <laughs> got it, got so it, got it. So it is, it is Mark Bolin. Um, sorry, so Blind Faith performed at the next one. Uh, it was Tyrannosaurus Rex, Pink Floyd, and Jethro's Hole played June 1968. And then Blind Faith played a free concert in 1969 at Hyde, and both of these were at Hyde Park in London. Oh God! Oh, about cool. a hundred thousand people came. Um, they even had knockoff Hell's Angels. No. Yes. I mean, I believe it. They're all over. It's <laughs> insane. No, they were completely unaffiliated. They had like jackets that they like drew on in chalk. They were like doing that thing that all those punks like did in the 60s this is a little bit before punk but the same kind of people who Leading evolved into, into that, that yeah. where they're wearing like nazi helmets you know and like swastikas and oh, stuff no. they're not like white supremacists like we view them now but they're like punks you know what i mean they're like counterculture yeah. have you ever seen like uh um the sex pistols for example like have that kind of stuff yeah like that was the vibe it was like they were like oh how can we best go against staunch british society well let's whip out our fucking swastikas you know like doesn't really make any sense yeah it doesn't really make any sense you know that these bikers were they were like a cheap harmless imitation of the hell's angels in the american in san francisco and san jose and oakland and stuff these guys were complete knockoffs and you can watch uh some footage from the um from the Rolling Stones free concert at Hyde Park that happened in a in, in July that year, 1969, that mm. you can see all these goofballs who are like running security, but they look like they're wearing costumes, like it's ridiculous. But they're harmless, and they did their job of you know kind of uh, uh, guiding traffic, you know, making sure if someone was sick they'd find their way to the hospital, making sure no one gets backstage or goes on the stage. They did their job, but they're just completely harmless and goofy they're not the same people you know it's like a house cat compared to a fucking tiger you know it's like (laughs) completely different animal so during this time um like i said everyone's obsessed with the san francisco scene that's going on so they want to have free concerts so the rolling stones want to have a free concert they have one in Hyde Park in July. They see how it works. Oh my God! There's a hundred thousand people here. We've got these bikers who are, you know, working security. And Mick Jagger did not love the police at all. He had a lot of, of course, run-ins. nobody did. Yeah, he had a lot of run-ins with the police, and uh, he actually had it written into their contracts that they would not have police run security. It would be like a, either a private security or whatever, but it would not involve the police the at cops, all. Yeah. So. Now they're meeting with Rock Scully, who's like this hippie royalty manager of the Grateful Dead, talking about doing free concerts. And this was right around the same time that uh, they were actually very short of money, the Rolling Stones. They were completely, completely like uh, 
broke basically. They're <laughs> That's shocking. Yeah, Bill Wyman was like writing bad checks. Um they they had this um funds manager, Alan Klein, who was just a complete piece of shit. He like handled Sam Cook's money and a few other people and just would funnel people's money um, through his own companies so he could decide how much money to actually distribute. So let's say we make a hundred thousand dollars. I give you like $10,000 and I'm like, there's going to be more coming. Don't worry. But I never end up paying you and there's no timeline on when I have to pay you. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, I still owe you X amount of money, but I'm the one who decides when you're going to get it and how much you're going to get. So he had this stranglehold on the stones and their entire finances. And to make matters worse, it was an American company. So it's like London to New York gets bottlenecked in New York, can't get back to London. And the stones were essentially broke. Wow. Which is insane to think about because they were at the peak of their powers. They were one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. Like how does that happen? And they're writing bad checks. Uh, Like it's unbelievable. Um, But... So they were getting screwed by the man. They were getting screwed by a ah, man. Ah, yes. One guy, yes. <laughs> by a man and you could, I guess, say the man. But yeah. they they decided that they needed a way to make quick money because mm. they were all <laughs> fucking broke. Yeah. So they're like, how can we do this? They decided, let's have an American tour. We hadn't played in America, you know, since the screaming uh, teenage girl days. And uh, it would be a great way to make money, see if they're still relevant, see how America would, you know, take them in. Mm-hmm. What year is this? 69? This is 1969. Got it. This is October 1969. So at this point, Scully starts talking to Keith Richards once he says we're going to be in America. Scully's like, oh, man, wouldn't it be awesome to have a Stones concert in Golden Gate Park for free in front of like in the coolest place in the world, like with the coolest people. And I mean, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were all about being like super cool. They were all about it. So they're, they were, they really kind of latched onto this idea of a free concert. So, um, this was like, I was saying months after they had just played that Hyde Park show with you know, the fake hell's angels and all that kind of stuff. That was the first live show that they had played or, Maybe the first time I, I I see maybe they played at like clubs or something like that, but it was like the first time that they had an official like tour date in like three years. So wow. the stones were super rusty and wondering, I, of course, if they were, yeah. like you said, still relevant. Yeah. And that, that was another thing is, are we still relevant? Because they were playing, you know, like basically the stones version of, I want to hold your hand in front mm. of, you know, screaming teens. And that's just not the same type of music that was being played in 1969. Yeah. Uh, now music was being played for audiences to listen to and like engage in and like just admire and like, you know, be real cerebral about it. It's yeah. not the same thing at all anymore. So, they ended up meeting Sam Cutler, who's a really young cat and really interesting dude. Um, he's he was hired on as their tour manager. Um, he his history is weird. He was like adopted a ton of times as a child. He was raised by a communist, and then he had he was like working um, some like I can't remember what maybe he was a teacher or something like that. Just some kind of mundane job for him. 
And uh, he took LSD one time and then decided to pursue a career in music and moved to London and, and ended up like rising through the ranks of the music industry really quickly and met the Rolling Stones um, and became their tour manager. So they, you know, the Rolling Stones, Sam Cutler, hmm. everyone went to their, their plane, went to um, America. And this is when they're going to do their tour. It's late 1969. I have a whole lot of um, notes on this tour, mostly from Wikipedia, but kind of just talk about it. It's one of the, the greatest, one of the most famous tours, I think, in the last... Um, 60, 70 years, mm-hmm. I guess. I mean, 1969, how long ago was that? Uh, 70 years ago? No. No, 60 years ago. <laughs> 50 years ago? <laughs> Where are we at? Yeah, 50 years ago. 69, My uh, podcast math is brutal. 52 years ago. 52 years ago. I had to think about that. I was like, I'm born in 89, I'm 32, so 20, 52, yeah. So this is basically like the set list that they were playing during this time. They were actually, it was so funny reading this as like, you know, a musician that plays like three hour sets regularly. And I play with like radio keys. I'll play by myself. They barely had an hour, (laughs) barely had an hour. So they had to stretch a lot of stuff. They were playing Jumpin' Jack Flash, Carol by Chuck Berry, Sympathy for the Devil, Straight Cat Blues, Love in J- Vain, a Robert Johnson song, Prodigal Son, Robert Wilkins. Oh, you got a lot move. of blues covers. Yeah, a lot of blues covers. Yeah. Kind of to fill in the space. Yeah, because um, you, can, you can really uh, stretch those out. Yeah. Under My Thumb, I'm Free, Midnight Rambler was one that came off of uh, their album that came out that year. Um, Little Queenie, I think that's, uh, that's a cover. Chuck Berry as well. Yeah. I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Honky Tonk Woman and Street Fighting Man. So that's kind of the era that they were in. Damn. It's playing these. I think it was Sticky Fingers was. Yeah, that sounds right for like Jumpin' Jack Flash. What's that on? Yeah, if you want to look that Jumpin up really Jack quick. Flash. But this is, uh, this is how many dates they had. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, Jumpin'. 13, 14, 15, 16 dates, including that... Um, and there were two festivals that they played. So okay. they went initially to Los Angeles. And this is a, a really fun part of the book because they're hanging out with all this like royalty of Los Angeles at the time in the music scene. They're in Laurel Canyon. Um, they're recording the rest of this record um, that they're, they're trying to put out that's been in the, in the pipes for a long time. And keep in mind, this is right after Brian Jones, uh, they're one of their original guitarists, and I think he was the founder of the band, had died. And he was becoming decreasingly involved in the band anyway. He was kind of kind of had these uh, drug and alcohol issues creeping up with him, so he wasn't really able to contribute to the Stones in the same way. So Richards and Jagger fired him and then he was found dead in his pool like a few days later oh no died at the age of 27 oh god so they had a sort of new lineup too do we know how he i i did not look up how he actually died i just looked at you know all the normal normal stuff about it but yeah they went to they 
the uh, Rolling Stones, they went all over the place. They were touring with, um, they were touring with Ike and Tina Turner, B.B. King, Terry Reed. They played the Ed Sullivan show at one point. I mean, they're all over the place. And it turns out that they are not only still relevant, but they're now maybe the biggest band in the world. Yeah. They're wow. coming with rave reviews. Everyone loves them. But there's still a bunch of um, publications, mainly coming out of the San Francisco Bay Area, that are calling them like corporate shills and like, you know, um, they're just in it for the money. They're selling their tickets for like $12, $20 a piece. And there's no way we can even afford four. So they're they're getting grilled at like press conferences like, what do you say to like people who can't afford your tickets and you know, like all this sort of thing. And this further inspires them and pushes them to want to have a free concert at yeah. the end of their set. Cause they're like, well, we do want to make money. So we do want to have our ticket prices, right. but at the same time we want people to think we're cool and hip like these San Francisco bands. So yeah, best way we can do that is by having a free concert, you know, just like the San Francisco cats. And then, it all will be forgiven for our expensive t- ticket <laughs> prices and all that. They'll just forget all about it. So on top of all of that, Mick Jagger is trying to mastermind this. And I use the term mastermind very loosely for <laughs> what Mick Jagger's role in it was. But this idea to have a documentary shot of their 1969 tour. And this um, was eventually given down down to the Maisels brothers. Let me uh, bring up just so I don't get their names wrong. Um, it was Albert and David Maisels. They ended up producing the film Gimme Shelter about yeah. this. And there's a lot of amazing footage that they shot. Um, there's footage of them in Los Angeles, you know, obviously Altamont, uh, the Madison Square Garden concerts are some of the most famous um and then, of course, a bunch of recordings of them in the Muscle Shoals studio, too. Cool. So a lot of very cool filming. And he was like, oh, man. We Wait, I saw Gimme Shelter. Didn't y- that come out? In uh, 1970, I think it came out. I mean, I, th- I thought I saw it in a special showing like in theaters, but I might be thinking of them. Anyway, 2013 film, Gimme Shelter. Yeah, I, I did see it in theaters in 2013. Interesting. I Never mind. Wrong movie. Pro- yeah. Wrong movie. Produced a 1970 film. Give me shelter. Yeah, there I was have. a Rolling Stones uh, documentary that came out. I feel like in like 2008 or 2009 that I saw in theaters. That was really cool. Uh, just really quick. Um, Rolling Stones discography. Let it bleed came out in 1969. Sticky, yeah, let it bleed. That's sticky the one fingers I'm is 71. That's what I'm thinking about. Let yeah, it bleed. Yeah, I just wanted to. While Thank we're you thinking for, uh, about it. No, that's a good audit. And that I album has that. Give Me Shelter, Let It Bleed, Love in Vain, Midnight Rambler. Um, yeah. So. But he heard that, um, you know, the Monterey, or sorry, the Monterey, the uh, Woodstock movie was being made. And I think there were a few other concert documentaries that were made. Maybe, maybe there was one about Monterey pop. But he started to kind of gravitate the idea towards the idea of like, this rockumentary kind of thing. And he saw that maybe potentially a lot of money could be made with very little effort from him actually. So he was very, you know, like hands, he, he like wanted to give things a thumbs up, but he didn't really have any ideas about it. So he just find, found, a, I think Scorsese was, was supposed to film it and he turned it down. 
and a few other guys turned it down too. And then the Maisels um, stepped up and decided to film it. So that was um, that was lucky for for him because he really had no clue about filmmaking or filmmakers. He just wanted to have a film done of the concert. So, okay. Yeah. So does that make sense? What What's going on right now? Am I missing any? I am following along and yes, yes. Okay. So right now the Stones are in Los Angeles. They play, you know, Inglewood at the Forum. Inglewood. Then they go to Oakland and play the County Coliseum where I just got my COVID vaccination. Wow. And uh, all of their sound gear fails almost immediately. Shit. So they have the dead, the Grateful Dead's crew, bring in all the Grateful Dead sound gear. And they set it up and it's like a super late concert. And they finally finished off. Is this like all in front of a giant crowd? Like yes. their sound failed? This isn't like sound check. These this is concerts like used to be absolutely like thrown together. wild card thrown together. The sound systems back then were horrible. They went out frequently. Power was always an issue. They hadn't, I mean, Woodstock and Monterey Pop and those kinds of festivals were very, you know, new to people. And in Oakland, it wasn't necessarily a, you know, a festival, but it was a big concert. It's a big concert, yeah. So there was a lot of, of things that were going wrong with these concerts. And, and sound and electricity and all that kind of stuff were huge problems back then. So... All of their gear failed. And remember, they have a relationship with the dead. They're in constant contact with them because they want to throw this free concert and they want them to put it on for them, basically. So Rock Scully sends in Owsley, the LSD dude, and, all the, and the sound guy, too, okay. to help them uh, figure out the sound in Oakland. And it kind of further cements their relationship um, as partners in this whole thing. So that's what happened in Oakland. Then they go to San Diego, Phoenix. They play um, at University Park. I'm not really sure what that is. Um, Auburn, Champaign. These are all Southern shows. And then uh, Chicago. And then they play that famous concert uh, in New York City. Um, actually, sorry. Th they play New York City one time at the Ed Sullivan Theater for the Ed Sullivan Show. They play Detroit, Philadelphia, Baltimore. And then they play those famous New York, Madison Square Garden um, concerts. Okay. And by the time they're in Madison Square ga uh, Garden, it's November 28th, 1969. Okay. The concert's in what, like nine days? The free concert? Oh, the Altamont is in yeah. December, yeah. right? And so I'll get more into that Gosh, in a little bit. it's in December bit. outside. But I guess it's California, so it's not super cold. Yeah. Can I, um, really quick? Yeah. The documentary I was talking about is Martin Scorsese's Shine a Light from 2008. And it's part um, the performance by the Rolling Stones at the Beacon Theater in New York. And yeah. then it's mixed in. You've seen these. Jack White plays with them. Christina Aguilera gets on stage. They do uh, Love and Cup. You've seen you've seen videos I've from seen this concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this came in um, theaters in 2008. And oh, it has a okay. ton of like old footage of the Rolling Stones like mixed throughout just like uh, the last waltz. Yeah. And there's like great footage of like, it's like black and white, like early sixties. Um, Mick Jagger being like, yeah, you know, I don't know if we'll be that famous or like saying something Aww. like that. So yeah. So that, sorry, that's what I was thinking of when you said, give me shelter. Cause I felt like a crazy gotcha. person. So I had to look that up and I highly recommend it. Um, 
yeah, it's very good. Okay. All right. So anyway, back. back to Oakland, the Rolling Stones, and Grateful Dead. And then, I mean, they have a run of those tour dates I mentioned after that. But it was right after that Oakland concert that he got um, Mick Jagger, uh, got got together with Rock Scully, the Dead's manager, mm-hmm. and this other character named um, Emmett Grogan, who he's a really weird character. Um, he's like part con artist, part like visionary. He. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I love he it. was obsessed with the concept of free. He was one of the guys that like created these free music, free music experiences. I talked about the human being at Golden Gate Park in 1967. Um, you know, one of the the absolute Sorry, first human B. Is it like human B E I N? Like yeah, B-N? dash the human B dash I N. So the like, human B N. So it's like a play on human being, but they're being like, you know, be here now. Yeah. I, <laughs> okay, got it. And the human being um, <laughs> was January fourteenth, nineteen sixty-seven. Uh, Wikipedia says it was a prelude to San Francisco's Summer of Love, which made the Hate Ashbury District a symbol of American counterculture and introduced the word psychedelic to suburbia. So that was the super peaceful concert where they, you know, had um, the Hell's Angels, the real Hell's Angels yeah. there. And they were actually very helpful. There were no incidents, no violence whatsoever. And um, I'm about to get more into the relationship between the Hell's Angels. So I'll let you know when we're about to get into that. Uh, okay. But it's very, it's coming up. Because um, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go back in time when we talk about the Hell's Angels. Yeah. So he, Emmett Grogan, is talking you know, probably talking up a big storm, doing his con artist shit to Mick Jagger, like at the human being, man, (laughs) (laughs) the hell's angels (laughs) were the security and they were amazing. They were great. They were amazing. 10 stars, five stars. Couldn't recommend. So he's talking about, he's like, they handled the lost children. There were no incidents. We can handle the lost children. Yeah, we can. So he was like, what we can do at this free concert is we'll get you in a parade of hundreds of hell's angels and they'll drive you guys to the stage and it'll be like a parade of counterculture. Yeah. No police involved. No, absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, And they really like this idea. So they envision like this giant, um, this giant stage. And very interestingly, Eric Emmett Grogan also laid out this vision, which I thought was very cool. Grogan envisioned large stages all throughout the park with different acts. Oh. What does that sound like? Hardly Strictly Bluegrass. It sounds like any music festival nowadays. Any music nowadays. festival, yeah. Any, anyone. Multiple, so he had yeah. this vision. So, so while, you know, while one band ends and they start breaking down and the roadies get on stage and there's like a lull, you can walk on over to, and there's yeah. somebody's mid-set. Yeah. Because if you think it's about Woodstock, music. Yeah. it was one stage. Yeah. Woodstock was one stage the entire time. It wasn't like you do now where you go from stage to stage, you go to the bar, you know, you go to the big bubble machine, whatever, whatever like burning it, main type it, of shit's going yeah, on. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't the same. So he did envision this, which is very interesting, but, um, that's huge. Yeah. Um, and so they say, we'll get the hell's angels, the righteous dudes. They carry themselves with dignity and honor. This is again, the, uh, the, 
Rock Scully. Mm. So he does have a close relationship with the dead who have a close partnership with the angels. Right. Um, and then finally, Grogan started getting down to all the nitty gritties of the festival. It's like food, bathroom, water. And then Jagger was like, no, that's enough. And he's like, those are practical realities that can be addressed at a later stage. This this is 11 days before the concert, nine days before the con. No, sorry, this is in Oakland, so it's a few weeks before the concerts. But mm. but still, it's November 9th, so it's about a month before the concert. But still, Mick like Jagger being a little little bit of a diva, he definitely is a little lead bit singer. Of a diva. Like I don't give a shit about this part. Like you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> let's move 100%, on. 100. Yeah. yeah. So one of the I'm we're gonna get into the Hell's Angels now a little bit more. Okay. Um, the Hell's if. I'm going to describe their relationship. Do it. Um, so basically we talked about Owsley. Um, his nickname was Bear. Owsley Stanley was the LSD producer. You have 300,000 tabs of acid. Are you going to walk around and figure it out? You need a distributor. Oh, God. So they turned to the Hells Angels to help them distribute LSD throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so they gained a very close partnership Owsley being you know the LSD guy and sound guy for the Grateful Dead and de facto sound guy for the entire San Francisco music scene and community Mm -hmm. they have the production of the drug they also have need for security and they all hate police Hell's Angels hate police can sell drugs move drugs, can work at security. And the police are afraid of the Hells And the Angels. police don't like them, and they don't like the police either. They're a either. little afraid of them, because <laughs> there are yeah. so many of them. So the Hells Angels and these hippie counterculturists in the in the mid sixty or sorry, late, I guess mid it's still 60s, late 60s, yeah. 67. It's not 69 yet where they developed this partnership. They you know, founded it years earlier. But they saw each other as like kind of brothers in arms. Like we're both counterculture. We both hate the police. Right. We both like to party and, um, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We love all we're gonna this stuff. We're going to do it by ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And we don't need the man exactly. to help Exactly. We us. don't need the man to help. We don't need to pay anybody. We don't need to have this kind of old-fashioned agreement. We can just, uh, yeah. So why don't you get a little bit more into what the Hell's Angels actually All right, so, were? So <laughs> we'll go to the first page of Hunter S. Thompson's book. He quotes uh, True Men's Magazine from August 1965. I'm a little nervous about pronouncing one of the words in this sentence, but I'm just going to go for it. They call themselves Hell's Angels. They ride, rape, and raid like marauding cavalry. Marauding? Marauding cavalry. Like and they it. boast that no police force can break up their criminal motorcycle fraternity. So apparently, I was kind of surprised today. So I've been reading quite a bit of the Hunter S. Thompson book, and then I was also just kind of doing some research on Hell's Angels today. They were formed in 1948. So it took them a long time to sort of um, become the sort of infamous Hell's Angels that they became in the 60s. And there's a reason for that, which I'll go into. Um, so they were founded in Fontana, California, um, when several small motorcycle clubs agreed to merge. Um, it looks like, uh, the name, the Hells Angels was first suggested. This is from their website, uh, by an associate of the founders named Arvid Olson, who'd served in the quote unquote Hells Angels squadron of the flying tigers in China during world war two. 
So that's where they got their name. Um, so Hunter S. Thompson in 1965 um, did an article called The Motorcycle Gangs, Losers and Outsiders, um, May 17th, 1965, in The Nation. And after that came out, um, his editor, whose name he shouts out, uh, Carrie McWilliams, said this could be a book. You could write a book about these guys. Um, so did you know that Hell's Angels is Hunter S. Thompson's first book? I did not know that. I didn't until today either, because uh, I, I read them so out of order. I just assumed this was, you know, something later on. But so he ends up after that um, uh, motorcycle gang losers and outsiders article comes out in 1965. He starts. He meets with the Hell's Angels in uh, Oakland, and Oakland slash San Francisco. It's a little unclear sometimes, like yeah. where he is, but you know they're right there. Um, so he spent the next year preparing for the book by hanging out with the Hell's Angels three day, up to three to four days a week. They would come to his apartment in San Francisco, Hunter S. Thompson. They actually got him kicked out of two apartments because huh. when the landlord saw the Hell's Angels come hang, coming to hang out with Hunter S. Thompson, they were like, are those your friends? And he was like, yeah, kind of. And then he got an eviction notice like a few days later. Like that's how sort of notorious they were in the Bay Area. Um, so let's see. When was this book published? Uh, so the book, Hell's Angels... The Strange and Terrible Saga of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs is a book written by Hunter S. Thompson, from, published 1967. So that kind of blows my mind. So it was out because years before, before exactly. this was going on. So 65, 66 is when he's spending a year hanging out with the Hells Angels, and he's sort of documenting all of that in this book. Um, and by 67, he's got it published. So the fact that he wrote this book that fast kind of blows my mind. Um so let's see, where shall we go from here? Uh, let's see. So connecting one quote that's sort of, here's a Hell's Angels quote that can sort of connect them to this sort of counterculture ideal idea. Um, Hell's Angel speaking on record. So Hunter S. Thompson was hanging out with them at their homes and bars, all that stuff. And he was constantly at a tape recorder with him. And the Hell's Angels knew he was a, uh, journalist and they were usually kind of anti-journalists but he was introduced to the Hells Angels from an ex-Hells Angel who became a journalist for the SF Chronicle um, whose name is Bernie Jarvis gotcha. um, yeah so he so he kind of was able to be introduced to them as like by an ex-Hells Angel right um, so here's a it just says a Hells Angel this is one of the quotes that uh, Hunter S. Thompson has from his tape recorder we're the one percenters man the one percent so Let's keep in mind, we're not talking about the Occupy yeah. 2012 1%, the wealthy, <laughs> but like we're talking about, you know, the countercultural 1%. Well, the, I know where that comes from. Yeah. Is there's a famous quote where uh, they're talking about motorcyclists and they're like 99% of motorcyclists are upstanding citizens. And oh, then they were like, we're the one percenters. So we're the one percenters, man. The 1% that don't fit and don't care. Don't talk to me about your doctor bills. And your traffic warrants. I mean, you get your woman and your bike and your banjo. I don't know why he has a banjo. And I mean, you're on your way. We've punched our way out of a hundred rumbles, stayed alive with our boots and our fists. We're royalty among motorcycle outlaws, baby. So there's a pride in that. Like not, again, this is counterculture. So they're not sort of like acquiescing to things like traffic warrants or like having a job with health insurance and like yeah. all this boring white picket fence shit that was like the fifties ideal. This is the sixties. And they're like, we want to live a different way. So we're going to get, you know, our 
lady or mama or whatever they call her on the back of the bike and that's all we need um so let's see it's interesting to me um da, 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 da. well it's interesting that you say that um Hunter S. Thompson met them through that one gentleman who worked for the SF Chronicle, was it? Yeah, at um, Hells Angel. That, yeah. Um, SF bands credit meeting the Hells Angel through Ken Kesey. I'll get there, too. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of how to organize this. Um, okay, so just I'll just do a couple quotes that sort of give you a sense of how gnarly they are um, yeah. from the book. Uh, so let's see. Um, every angel recruit comes to his initiation wearing a new pair of Levi's and a matching jacket with the sleeves cut off and a spotless emblem on the back. The ceremony varies from one chapter to another, but the main feature is always the defiling of the initiate's new uniform. A bucket of dung and urine will be collected during the meeting, then poured on the newcomer's head in a solemn baptismal. Or he will take off his clothes and stand naked while the bucket of slop is poured over him and the others stomp in it. So it's a little animalistic, That's a little fun. fraternity-ish. Um, Pouring shit and, and piss all over a guy. So we'll start. Uh, so yeah, so Hunter S. Thompson starts, uh, opens up with sort of how the Hells Angels made their quote unquote, as he calls it, almost like a showbiz fame. Um, so it's the Monterey Run, Labor Day, 1964. Uh, so... For the Hells Angels, the Labor Day run is the biggest event on the Hells Angels calendar. It is the annual gathering of the whole outlaw clan, a massive three-day drunk that nearly always results in some wild, free-swinging action and, and another rude shock for the squares. No angel would miss it. So basically, they hold this every year at a different place, and they keep getting kicked out of these places by the city. So the city of Monterey... They're going to come to the city of Monterey and the Monterey police decide, okay, we're just going to put them on a beach far from town. And as long as they stay there, it'll be fine. Cause they, they haven't had, they've had some charges against them for, you know, rape or battery or all that kind of thing, but it hasn't, they don't have their reputation quite yet. Yeah. Um, so the Monterey police, as the Hells Angels say, it's like, we've never been met with such, such hospitality as the Monterey police. Like they're giving us a, an option. Like you guys can stay over here. Just keep it away from town. Um, so here's another quote. Weird as it seems, as this gang of costumed hoodlums converged on Monterey that morning, they were on the verge of making it big, as the show biz people say. And they would owe most of their success to a curious rape mania that rides on the shoulder of American journalism. Nothing grabs an editor's eye like a good uh, rape. We really blew their minds this time, as one of the angels explained it. According to the newspapers, at least 20 of these dirty hopheads snatched two teenage girls, aged 14 and 15, away from their terrified dates and carried them off to the sand dunes to be repeatedly assaulted. Wow, that's brutal. It's fucking brutal. Yeah. And it's he he gets a lot more into it um, in this. This is before he meets the Hells Angels, right? Yeah. So he's kind of you know guessing at what the imagery of that would look like. But 14 and 15-year-old girls who the Hells Angels, of course, say, oh, they wanted to be there. Oh, they wanted, they wanted to yeah. be a part of this thing. And it's like, yeah. no, they did not. Um, so you start to see these headlines of like, you know, uh, motorcycle gang takes over the city of Monterey, you know, two teenage girls raped. Like this is the kind of headline that starts to make it um, nationally across the whole U S the mm -hmm. New York times picks it up Newsweek, all that stuff. So this is where 
just like he said, they're uh, making it big showbiz fame comes from. Yeah. So that's kind of how people learn who the Hells Angels are. It so ho- it's household names. It's at that fucking point. brutal, right? Yeah. So just as a reminder <laughs> that they are. These are not the brutal. London Hells Angels. Yeah, <laughs> they're, it's a brutal. Yeah, they're not the, the fake Hells Angels. They're brutal guys. And um, not to jump ahead, but a year after. So sorry, this mic stands driving me crazy. Um, a year after Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, sorry, he spends a year with them. Um, he writes the book. Uh, they're not super, super stoked about the book. They think it's kind of bullshit, but what, what ends up happening is a couple of them while they're hanging out with Hunter S Thompson beat the shit out of Hunter S Thompson, the journalist that's been a quote unquote friend of theirs for over a year. They've been hanging out three to four days a week, right? He's almost, he says something, he rides a motorcycle as well. And he says something at one point in the book about like, at some points it was like blurring the line between, and this is where he gets, starts his kind of gonzo journalism of like, you know, fear and loathing on Las Vegas. He did all the drugs to write about it. He's like immersing himself. So he says about the hell's angels. He's like, you know, at some points I was like, am I doing, am I here to be a journalist or am I being engulfed in this world? You know, he's kind of like blurring the, the lines of it, which is how he gets this amazing book. Um, but they end up, they end up turning on him and he has an afterword in the, in the book about it. Um, and I watched a pretty, it's on YouTube. There's a video on YouTube I watched today from 1967 and I forget the, uh, the person who's doing the interview, but it's, it's basically, uh, it's, a uh, kind of like a, uh, stadium seating interview in front of a big audience and a hell's angel comes in on a motorcycle and there's the uh, interviewer guy and there's Hunter S. Thompson. And this is after they beat the shit out of Hunter S. Thompson. And the interviewer guy's asking the hell's angel, like what happened um, that this relationship turned so sour. And apparently according to the hell's angel and, and Hunter S. Thompson, um, they were all partying or whatever. And, um, I think his name is like Junkie Rob or something stupid like that. Junkie George. The Hells Angel says he's like, oh, Junkie George is like beating the shit out of his wife. And then his dog came around and bit Junkie George. So he started beating the dog. And then Hunter S. Thompson came up and said, only a, only a punk beats, beats his wife and his dog. And with that comment, the Hells Angels turned on him. Yeah. Which is crazy. Well, and- they had the ideology like any singular angels fight is every angels fight yeah so they if there was one guy who would swing on hunter s thompson it wouldn't matter who else had yeah. a relationship with hunter even s. though thompson, he's been hanging all, out they're with all them. in it because he wasn't an angel like he he was a sympathizer and a friend but he was not an angel and that's who they owe their at the end of the day and what what's crazy about this interview is it's 1967 and when that hell's angel says you know he says something like, just like, just like beating a rug, you got to beat your wife every once in a while to like keep her in line or something. And the whole audience cheers. <laughs> it's like so 1967. It's like, wow. what? It's a chilling, wow, horrifying, misogynistic thing. And um, yeah, there's tons of women in the audience and they're laughing when he's like, oh, you know, Junkie George is beating the shit out of his wife. Oh, ha, ha. And Hunter Thompson says something like, yeah, it looked like he was about to, you know, take a rock and hit her in the head with it. Like that's why. I, anyway, yeah. um, so 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 that's dark. Yeah. So there's that. So they end up they end up turning on Hunter S. Thompson. So at some point, and this is included in the Hell's Angels book, um, in 1965, um, 
Ken Kesey meets the Hells Angels in through, through Hunter S. Thompson gotcha. in 1965. Do, 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 do. Okay, so yeah, so Ken Kesey is a young novelist at the time, and um, he's been arrested a few times for marijuana by now, so he's already a little anti-cop. Um, that's also why the angels liked him. <laughs> Not because he was a writer. They're like, we like that. He has like kind of a record. Exactly. And um, he was, a, I think he was also a college wrestler too. So he was like kind of a, he could, you know, get in a, a tumble or a rumble or whatever you want to say yeah. and like hold his own too. So they did oh, have yeah. respect for his record and his like wrestling fighting ability. Interesting. I, guess. I mean, even like Jack Kerouac, um, was kind of like a, like a gnarly, knew how to fight, you know, like these were not like these hoity-toity authors. They were like real kind of blue collar guys. Um, so yeah, so he introduces, so Hunter S. Thompson introduces Ken Kesey. Um, he says that sometime in San Francisco in 1965, um, they meet up for a beer. And since this is the time when Hunter S. Thompson is spending so much time with the Hells Angels, um, they're basically, uh, in a bar and he meets a couple of the angels and after several hours of eating and drinking and the symbolic sharing of herbs, Kesey invites the Frisco chapter down to La Honda for a party on the coming weekend. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be the infamous, and this is also in uh, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, the weekend of August 7th, 1965. Um, so, uh, I'll do another quote. Um, let's see. Uh, and okay, so they're having a party in La Honda. This is where Kesey lives. He posts a sign on his gate saying, "The Merry Pranksters welcome the Hell's Angels." And the Merry Pranksters were um, a group of friends that like did drugs acid and, like, and all acid stuff. specifically. Yeah, and, and um, that was Ken Kesey's like kind of troop of people that he like wa went around with. Exactly, um, and they're doing basically acid quote-unquote acid tests where they're so here's a quote about the party okay um so this is the party that so Hunter S. thompson you know so kesey met, meets the hell's angels invites him to this this party Hunter S. thompson says okay i'll go he goes he realizes he has his wife and his kid with him so he takes them back to the hotel room and he comes back and when he comes back he says the party grew wilder and louder. There was very little marijuana, but plenty of LSD, which was then legal. The cops stood out on the highway. So the cops are parked outside of this house because they know something's going on, but they can't pounce, right? Um, the they don't cops, have probable cause. Exactly. The cops stood out on the highway. So And he says plenty of LSD, which was then legal. So they can't in 1965. Yeah. The cops stood out on the highway and looked across the creek at a scene that must have tortured the very roots of their understanding. Here were all these people running wild, bellowing and dancing, half naked to rock and roll sounds piped out through the trees from massive amplifiers, reeling and stumbling in a maze of psychedelic lights, wild by God and with no law to stop them. Then with the arrival of the Hells Angels, the cops finally got a handle and they quickly tripled the guard. Kesey had finally gone over the line. So they've been they've been uh, hanging out at Kesey's house for a while, and then the Hell's Angels start showing up. And what's funny, and this is from this is from an article I read today, um, AmericanShortFiction.org, titled "Things American: Ken Kesey, Hunter S. Thompson, and the Hell's Angels at La Honda, August seventh, nineteen sixty-five." And it um it kind of summarizes it, and it's it's interesting because so. Among Kesey's guests that day were Allen Ginsberg, Neil Cassidy, Richard Alpert, Harvard professors of the LSD movement, and Hunter S. Thompson. Um, 
so when Hunter S. Thompson and the pranksters, so when Hunter S. Thompson comes back from dropping off his family, he's by the way, he's 28 years old. Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson oh is 28 years old. And Sonny Barger, the year that Hunter S. Thompson spends with the... Uh, Sonny Barger is the Hells head Angels. of the Oakland Hells Angels Right. Chapter. So when he meets Sonny Barger, Sonny Barger's 27. And what strikes you right away when you read like this book is when our generation maybe thinks about the Hells Angels, we think of this kind of like middle-aged motorcycle gang. At least yeah. I've when we've seen them in real life, that's what they look like to me. Yeah, I've seen the Canadian Hells Angels in Canada. It's funny. They're super nice. <laughs> um, and, but when, so he opens up his book and he talks, he starts by talking about, I think Terry uh, is one of the oldest Hells Angels and he's 37. And he says that most of the Hells Angels are between like 20 and 29. Yeah, I think it's they're the all, same. They're all young. It's the you know? same reason why when we like to rock concert and watch a bunch of bands from back in the yes, day on ex- YouTube, precisely, you see what they look like when they were young. Like picturing the Rolling Stones during this conversation we're having, they're in their twenties. They're in their, I think, late twenties exactly. at this point. So when we think of the Rolling Stones now, we, we picture those seventy-five-year-old <laughs> men, you know, on the stage. And uh, playing stadiums and having those crazy light shows. You don't picture like the back room, like cigarette smoke, uh, 20 year old dudes who are making this music. You know, you picture the kind of a little bit less cool version of them, the older version of them. So after what's great about this article on American short fiction is. You know, Hunter S. Thompson has been spending a lot of times with the Hells Angels and he's seen their sort of drunken, crazy partying where they're like breaking doors and furniture and there's a lot of horrible things going on and stabbings and all this crazy shit. Um, And then so he sees that, you know, Ken Kesey's now introducing the Angels to LSD and he's like, this can't go well. But to his surprise, when he returns, and I'm going to quote, um, the Merry Pranksters were showing a movie on a large trampoline screen. They projected parts of the film they'd taken during their bus trip the year before footage from their daily lives. It soon became apparent was so repetitive and blah, blah, blah. Um, members of the hell's angels were sitting there peacefully. They seemed content. Others were wandering the ground. <laughs> the film shown was four hours long. Um, so he's just sort of surprised. <laughs> he's like, film. okay, so they fed the hell's angels a bunch of acid and they sort of chilled out basically yeah. <laughs> like so yeah. so they sort of found this kind of peacefulness and and yeah so i think this was kind of the beginning of the counterculture embracing the hell's yeah. angels because they were like yeah they don't like the cops either maybe they can protect us from the cops in, a, in some sort of way and you know they did acid and they chilled out and they they hung and it was yeah. fine you know so i think we're probably going to wrap this up pretty soon basically ken kesey and the merry pranksters Met the angels through these legendary parties, like the one you're talking about. And um, eventually, I mean, they're all in the same area at the same time, all doing acid. The guy who's making the acid is friends with the dead. They start throwing free concerts. The angels are always around as security or as, you know, distributors. Yeah. So this is a melting pot that now by 1969 is starting to boil over a little bit more. We're yeah. talking about acid when it was in its purest form. Yeah, that's the 1965 acid that Ken is yeah. feeding the angels, and they're like, this and is great, this is by chill. By 1968, not only has there been a, a, like a multitude of amateur chemists trying to recreate LSD, Oof. so they mix it with like strychnine and oh, amphetamines and all this other stuff that they think will affect the high. So now... 
people are starting to get a little more agitated from LSD. There's also the introduction of speed into Oof, the yeah. streets of San Francisco. So now you have a guy doing LSD and doing speed oh, and God. getting drunk. And now it creates this super paranoid, kind of more rageful, um, violent. Yeah, well, um, your body's fighting against itself. So just to kind of put a, a pin in this, by the time we're in 69, the 60s is not the summer of love anymore. Well, we had, here's our drop. Charles Manson murders were yeah. August 10th <laughs> and 11th, 1969. Yeah, this is not your, Holy you know, shit. this is not uh, a, a very peaceful San Francisco. This is kind of a San Francisco and a music scene yeah, that's starting to get a little bit more agitated, a little bit more violent, straying away from the... The pure Free love hippie. Yeah, it is not yeah. that way anymore. So we have the Stones in America. We have them failing to find a location for this concert. They still haven't found it a month out. They don't have any idea about the bathrooms, the water, the food, or anything a month out. And um, they just got into bed. They have the security figured out. They just got into bed with the Hells Angels. So we have the Hells Angels the Rolling Stones, the San Francisco uh, hippie music community, mm -hmm. Grateful Dead, all together mm -hmm. in America. Free concert. And in um, part two, we're going to actually go into the concert and all of that craziness that goes along Great with it. Great job setting the scene. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. It, it's, such yeah. a, it's like such there's a... There's so much. It's like there's a 400-page so book, and yeah. there's so many different avenues to cover. I kind of skirted it. But I'm hoping that it all makes sense in the end, you know? So, Radio Keys News, we have a concert on April 2nd at Monica's in Livermore. Awesome. And also very outside, exciting. By the way. Yeah, outside. Um, very exciting news. We're starting to work on our second record. Well, third, second full-length record. Yeah. And um, we're going to start recording it this Saturday. So we'll get our first few songs down this Saturday, which is very exciting. Maybe release some singles soon. Yeah, they'll be they'll be out soon. But uh do you have anything left that you want to add? No, we will pick up where we left off next time. All right. So part two of Altamont, uh the free concert tragedy, uh will be out next week. So once again I'm Stuart. I'm Emily. And we're gonna keep searching for that sweet soul music.
Them voices 